What you believe often says a lot about you. Oftentimes, we, um, there's three words that I want us to remember this morning. One is believe. The second word is behave. This is going to be a really stretch for a lot of you, but this is brought to you by the letter B. Okay? I know it sounds a little bit like Sesame Street, but we're okay. So the first word is believe. The second word is behave. And the third word is belong. Believe, behave, belong. Jesus said that, um, that he would be rejected of men, that he would become the chief cornerstone. That is the main place where things are built, a home or things were built at the cornerstone. It, made, it was the, truly the foundational point of life and that he was that foundational cornerstone. And a lot of times we look at his life and we on the other side of the cross can agree with what he said, that he is the chief cornerstone, that his death brought about our forgiveness of sins and that he rose again in new life and power. And a lot of times we look at those things and we mentally assent or we believe that those things took place. I guess what I'm wanting to talk to you about is that your belief or mental assent of what the Bible says is good, but there are things that when we say we believe, it, uh, it really is a whole lot more than just our mental assent. Back in... Uh, I'll say olden times, because many of you are younger than me, and um, you probably have no grid for this aspect of the Christian walk, and that is a lot of times in the early 60s, 70s, um, oftentimes what was the value of church was exactly those three words in those particular orders. It mattered what you believe, which produced a behavior, and when you believed and behaved, you belonged. Um, if you don't believe me, um, <laughs> it's true, oftentimes when we look at things, or we, uh, back in the 70s and 60s, it was oftentimes, we had this, there was such an anti-authoritative message in the 60s that brought about the free love and the flower power, that type of thing. It was such an anti-authoritarian, it was such a, a different move. It was just trying to overcome the establishment Yet the church held to a very strong, there was still the very strong church culture in people that if you believed this way, you behaved this way, and you would be a part. The 70s, even though we got into free love and more so, it, uh, there was still, the church kept to its, 
its rather focus of believe, behave, belong. Even when I was uh, pastoring in the 80s and 90s, um, there was a young couple that came to our, came, started coming to the church, and they said to uh, myself and the other pastor, they said, you know, we would have been here sooner, but we thought we had to clean up our life first. We thought we had to stop drinking. We thought we had to stop smoking. We thought to have, because in essence, that's the church stood for those things you didn't smoke, chew, dance, or go with the girls that do. It's just that was the church. And so oftentimes, it was if you believed this, you would then do this, and in fact, you then were accepted. A lot of our denominations in religion follow that particular order. If you believe that you can speak in tongues and you behave you speak in tongues, then you belong with the tongue talkers. Okay? And oftentimes, it's what led to a lot of breakdown of in, in Christianity into denominations is... If you believe this way, you will do this, and you will belong to this group, or that group, or this group. And we often have, you know, in some cases, the first Baptist church is over there, the second Baptist church is over there, the third Baptist church is over there, and the Pentecostals are somewhere in the middle, and then you have the Alliance, Mennonites, on and on it goes. But I, I guess when it comes to Resurrection Sunday, is that what it's all about? Is that what our Christianity is all about? I'm going to challenge a little bit of status quo thinking today. And often when you, you want to challenge the status quo people then think that you believe something different than everybody else, and that's not the case. I just have to, as a speaker, get you out of the comfort zone of being a spectator and listen. So often I'll say things which will make you go, oh, I didn't know that. It allows me to engage with you. Now, there are... There are things that we believe. Now, I'm going to talk about belief for a moment. There are things that we believe that often indicate how we're going to live life. Now, I can believe that a chair will hold me up. It's not till I have action that I'll sit in it that I'll actually know that this belief that this chair will hold me will be a factor, will be so. But all through our lives, as we live life, we live and we're developing belief systems. Now, when I was younger, I was really impressed with my mom and dad. I thought they, were, they knew everybody that was somebody. Like, we belonged to a church. My dad was a deacon. My, my mom was very did this program called We College. I was a first graduate. And 
they knew a lot of people. And matter of fact, new people come to our home and my mom or dad would say, well, I went to Bible college with them or I went to college with them and they are great people. And it seemed that, that there was lots of things that took place in our home. The belief was that I learned to believe is that, hey, I was somebody because I was in this home. Matter of fact, I believed that my family, my, my, my dad's or my mom's family was important to me. I learned that um, the, this church camp that is still in works today was built on my grandfather's land. My grandfather gave it so that it could be developed into a church camp, and it's still running today. There are things that I grew up accustomed to that said I was somebody. But I also learned that, you know what? I wasn't also somebody. There were things that took place in my life that gave me a belief system as well. There are times that I didn't act correctly as a child, and I can remember being looked after by my aunt. She was so upset with me, and I was... I felt like the whole... My, whole, my cousins, my uncle, my aunt were all zoning in on me because I had spilt my milk. And life just evaporated at that point. I thought that life ended. I was, everybody was making, I felt unaccepted. I went to my, I, they sent me to bed. I was crying myself to sleep. And I literally, and I can still visualize it today, I still know, and so maybe there's more to it than this, but basically I went to bed thinking that really I wasn't anybody, and that really it was, I, I wasn't accepted. I didn't measure up. Um, later on, my family had to sell uh, on that same camp. We, we had a cabin at that camp. Uh, my father built it from scratch. And uh, some years later, uh, we had to sell that cabin. That was the first time. And, uh, you know, it's something when you're younger and you're in your, when you're only six or seven years old and people come into this camp, into your cabin, and they begin to size it up and think what they're going to do to it before you even have left it. But it was, it was among the, you know, it was like the handshake between my parents and them was, yeah, we will sell you this cabin and we want first right of refusal in case you ever give it up, we want to buy it back. I, then why give it up in the first place? You ever thought that? Why do you want to sell something that you're going to buy back for more money? Anyway, um, I, got a, I got a belief system out of that as well that I didn't, we didn't have enough. I remember going to uh, our, our families used to get together at Christmas time, and my cousins got everything. Like, they got everything. They got all the new stuff. They had, they had uh, toys. Uh, they had skidoos. They had boats. They had skiing. They had uh, all the stuff that I wanted 
I could have. And I, it felt like they got it all, and I had to impose upon them to take me for a ride on the skidoo, or impose them so they would take me for a boat ride, or impose that I could maybe get a water ski. And their friends used to get it all the time, but I'm, I'm the cousin. I'm supposed to be connected to you more than just friendship. I'm in blood. Hello? And you're supposed to like me because I'm a good person. But I always felt like I was imposing on them. I remember that um, one, one summer I wanted to stay at the cabin and I wanted to stay all summer. So I wanted to get a job so that I could... We bought the cabin back. I'll let you know. We bought the cabin back for more money than... And, uh, and so... We had our cabin back, and I wanted to stay there when I was a teenager. I wanted to stay there all summer. I thought, you know, a summer at the camp would be cool, but I needed a job. And uh, I looked for a job. I couldn't find a job, and so my uncle hired me to do some work around his big home. And um, it was all the things that my older cousin wouldn't do, okay? Okay. So I had to clean dog pen. I had to kind of mow the lawn and do stuff. I even had to uh, fascia, I think that's what you call it, around the outside underneath the eaves. And uh, he had this cedar. So I, all around this big home, I had to sand over my head all these pieces of cedar. One time I got close to the to the brick fireplace. There was a, you know, a good, that much between the fascia and the fireplace. And I'm up about 20 feet up in the air. And all of a sudden, this bat comes whipping out. And I'm, I'm literally kind of going, whoa! Luckily, I didn't fall. That was back when safety wasn't an issue, right? <laughs> you, you never harnessed yourself up. You never did all of those things. And I was just lucky that I could, st- I'm standing here today, I haven't broken a bone, and uh, I didn't fall off the ladder that day. But all those times, I had to sit back and watch my cousins, watch people do their things, and I was doing the things that I thought I was well above doing. Or at least I thought I was connected in such a way that I was accepted and um, I felt like, really, it wasn't about me working for my uncle. He was just doing a favor for my mom. That's how it felt. And um, so, the whole aspect is, is that we have belief systems that not only from truth, but also how we've experienced truth. And so, it's with that in mind, I want you to read with me. Uh, John chapter 20. And um, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and 
and they were going toward the tomb, but both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. I think John had a complex because he talked about himself being the disciple whom Jesus loved. I guess he didn't love Peter, I'm not sure. That was supposed to be a joke. Everybody's supposed to laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Okay? And he reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. You know, I, I sometimes feel like that life gets to the place where you, you're expecting something that's going to take place and it's different than you expected it to. And often that is the case because our beliefs and what we experience sometimes are two different things. You see, you have to understand that Jesus, who Mary loved, was supposed to be in the tomb when she got there. She was part of the friends and family back when Lazarus was in the tomb. Right? And Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. What happened? Lazarus came hopping out, still all bound up in his grave clothes. So Mary was coming that day with expectations and a belief system that said, this Jesus is supposed to be here, all bound up, and I'm supposed to still prepare this body. But he wasn't there. Well, immediately you would go to the people that were closest to him. Wait a minute. Jesus isn't there. What did they do with him? So the two disciples ran. John outran Peter. John stopped at the door. Peter ran totally in. And they found that what Mary was saying was true. I don't know about you, but there are times that we get to this place in life where we get this, this conflicted sense of tension that says, I'm believing this thing, but I'm experiencing that thing. Many of people have walked away from the faith because what they believed and what they were experiencing were two different things, and they gave up on their belief only to walk out their disappointment in the experience. And no one in this room can say, well, that's not me. Because literally, I've seen people that I thought would be continuing on in the faith have walked away from him because of those two things. My belief and my experience are two different things. There's a tension there, and there's no longer a congruence where I can bring those two things together. And quite frankly, it's not just a matter of truth. It's also a matter of how we live life out towards one another. Because ultimately, all of us here in this room, we are called the body of Christ. You are part of the body of Christ. If you've given your heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of his body. And what is really frustrating is when people have expectations of other people in his body and they don't meet those expectations. We get offended. We get upset. 
we get disillusioned, and we allow things to bring disappointment, discouragement, and the effect of the truth becomes null. How do you get through all that? Forgiveness? Guess what? Because Christ's body is still in its imperfect, somewhat in the, the Christ's body is in the flesh, we make mistakes. We have to cut each other some slack and allow the, our own forgiveness that Christ would have. It, Christ commanded us. It's that one commandment he gave us. Love one another as I have loved you. But I'm getting a kind of away from the story. And I was afraid that was going to happen. Peter and John are good disciples of Jesus. In fact, they're the best disciples of Jesus. They built their whole life on following the rabbi. He's their mentor, their teacher. But when Jesus' body is gone, their whole concept about who he is now has to change. Remember, they were in his Bible college. They, maybe their major was overthrowing Rome. Maybe they just thought they would become a new sect of Pharisees. They've seen Jesus raise the, raise the dead, but they think the dead raiser has to stay dead. They don't realize how God will raise Jesus all by himself in an act of grace. It says here that Simon Peter came in, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place all by itself. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed, for they yet did not understand the scripture that he must raise from the dead. When the disciples went back to their homes, they still were in conflict. Here's the problem with the way our own beliefs organize the world. They make us trapped in our own patterns of behavior. Life becomes all about what we do not about who we are. Our religious habits like going to church or beating ourselves up before we go to sleep or passing around the dangerous gossip to make ourselves feel better or letting our mother-in-law walk all over us at family dinner. Maybe those behaviors never change. But when we talk about behavior, when we talk about beliefs, Moving into behavior, now we'll begin to see a little bit different of the story. Now, I'm all too familiar with being judged by my behavior. Um, you know, I, I think uh, being belong of, with the family that I have, I, I'm going to share some stories that um, allow you to know that it's a little bit behavior motivated. I remember being... Um, I. I learned to, pee, to play piano when I was younger. I went to this Yamaha school. This, my mom used to drive us across town to go to this Yamaha thing. It was Yamaha music school, whatever. I, and I knew that if I didn't do it right, I was going to get it when I got home. Now, I want to let you know I love my mom and I love my dad. 
but that's the way things were. You just had to live up to the standard. If I didn't do what the teacher asked me to do, I knew that I was going to get disciplined from my mother or, if not, my father when he got home. And most definitely, I didn't wait for the latter. I took the first. Because I knew that my dad hit a lot harder than my mom did. And my mom's listening. Sorry, mom. I love you. Okay. My dad would do it with a hand. Mom would do it with a spatula. Used to hide the spatulas. It was such a thing that also I learned that, um, you know, some of the things that functioned in our home wasn't tolerated. My brother and I used to fight um, quite regularly, and we were told that uh, Grandma didn't like coming to our home because of the fighting that my brother and I used to do. She would hold back from coming, and you, know, I have to, you have to understand how these fights would go, okay? There would be, you know, start off with arguing, then we'd get in a little bit of tussle, and then I, I learned very quickly because I was the oldest, I was going to get it. So I was responsible for the others. Okay, so whatever my brother would do to me, I would get it because I should know better. I soon learned that if I'm going to get it anyway, I'm going to make it worth my while. <laughs> Although I did not plan for my brother to chase me around the house with a hockey stick. And he put the end of it through the door because I locked myself in the bathroom. I thought, I'm not going to face him. Like, I didn't know what I was going to face. If he was going to take a swing at me with the hockey stick or not. Like, and like, this is up near 12, 13 years of age. You don't mess with hockey stick. I also remember a time where I disrespected my father, and my father um, was quite quite harsh with me, and I, I don't remember the exact words, but the words were that uh, he felt like, he, he told me that I wasn't wanted. I remember times, one time I disrespected him, he slapped me across the face a couple of times. Um, behavior, behavior change out of fear is not proper behavioral change. Now, in these day, day and age, all of that sounds very abusive. But back then, well, it wasn't. It was life. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped, and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the, at the head, the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary Magdalene is a little different than the other two disciples. Here's what we know about her. She had seven demons cast out of her. And she became a follower of Jesus in an age where women were not respected and following Jesus was her whole world. 
It wasn't just the beliefs that she aligned with Jesus. It wasn't just that her behavior was influenced by Jesus. Ultimately, what we believe now and what we know is that ultimately what we believe and how we believe is really just a front so we can feel included and accepted. Mary needed Jesus because following him gave her purpose and identity. Belonging built on our behavior and belief often falls apart. But we seek that kind of belonging anyway. We, all of us here in this room, want to belong to something. And so in order to belong, we, we, we need to, we've learned over, over throughout life, even now, we are taught If things aren't functioning in your life, you get a mentor or you get someone who will help you mentor yourself so that you can change the way you believe. Like, who's that uh, self-image guy, Tony, whatever his name is, Robbins. If you believe it, you can have it. If you change the way you believe, you will get something different than what you got. Now, those are good words, but in essence, it's the same thing. You change what you believe in order to get... So you can behave, and your behavior brings about a belonging that you are now successful. You see, we get caught up in this whole game of belief, behave, belong. Now you're going to say, well, wait a minute. It says if I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth, I will be saved. So what are you saying? Are you saying that belief... Like your preaching's not the gospel. I am. I'm just coming at it from a different way. I'm talking about the systems of our beliefs that we have encountered in life create an atmosphere or a paradigm of how we think. The truth. You have to put your faith When we talk about belief, we have to put our faith into truth. And when we put our faith into truth, it is the truth that sets us free. Now, I want you to understand that here's where the story changes. There is a place where we have to to see this resurrection story as as something different. God was changing the whole whole parameter of thought and of process and of, of how religion worked. Because I guess what I want to say to all of us today is there is something about when Jesus spoke Mary's name. Change took place. It wasn't a matter of what she believed or that she behaved. It's that she belonged. She belonged all the time. You see, she looked at Jesus and said, oh, you must be the gardener. Where'd you put the body? And she, he said, Mary, Rabbi, meaning teacher, 
she recognized who he was. All from one word, Mary. I guess what I'm wanting all of us here to understand is that if God has called us as a church to be burning ones, you can't burn just from a mental ascent or from how you behave. It comes from belonging to a family and his family. Where he speaks your name and he calls you by name and he says, I love you. You see, the whole aspect of Christianity comes from the point that there's no longer a religious sense of belief, behave, belong. It's belong, believe. Behavior comes as you are sensing your connectedness to the Savior. Um, there are many times that I have felt like I, I have belonged by doing certain things. But I guess I want to quickly tell you about the fact that one evening I was, I was youth pastoring and uh, we had, I had just finished taking my youth choir on this tour and we ended up in Kelowna and um, we were doing it in front of the Kelowna Youth Group. Their youth group was about double our size, but our youth choir was going to do something, and so we took the service, and um, <clears throat> I was uh, busy involved with that. My, my cousin went to the church, and um, little beknownst to me as I was we were getting ready for the service, and before the service started, the youth pastor says, Kendall, I need to talk to you in my office after our service tonight. And I said, okay, sure. I did not know that my father had passed away that afternoon. My cousin knew. I did not know. And so the, my, my wife phoned the youth pastor of the Kelowna and said, could you make sure that he doesn't find out from his cousin, but I'd like to tell him myself. So uh, the service went on. We did a thing. I spoke, and it ended. I went to the pastor's office, the youth pastor's office, and there was, was Barb and my senior pastor. And I thought, what in the world are they doing here? I thought, and immediately my grid for where things were at was not where I've just told you what had taken place. I thought some moral failure took place with Barb and she's going to now confess to me. That's where I thought this was. Like it, it, the grid that I was at was not there. And then my wife told me that my dad had died. He had a massive heart attack that afternoon. And I was in shock. I didn't even say anything. I just said, where's my coat? Let's go. Matter of fact, I didn't cry on the way home. I said, we're going to stop at McDonald's and have a couple of cheeseburgers. All the way through from that moment till after the funeral, I did not cry. 
I, at the viewing, I did not cry. At the funeral, I did maybe... It was... That was... But I felt I needed to be strong. You see, my father told me, and this goes back a long time ago, but he used to do two jobs, and one was he, would, he worked for the Canadian government. The other job was he sold suits. And when he sold suits, he would come home late at night, and he used to tell me before he went, he said, Kendall, you're the oldest. You look after your mother if I'm gone. What a responsibility for a six-year-old. Okay, so when he passed away, my immediate reaction was those words, look after your mother and the family. So I was Mr. Tough, not Mr. Tough Guy, but I was stoic in saying to be strong for my mother and for my brother and my sister. And uh, quite frankly, it was, uh, I, I scared myself. I didn't really know how to process what was going on. And so, I tell you that is because I empathize with Mary. I feel the loss that comes with wanting to belong to someone only to have that person die before their time. Mary used to belong because she believed in Jesus. What she doesn't realize is that she now belongs to Jesus because he rose again. Her belonging has nothing to do with her beliefs or behavior. He's alive before her, before she even knows it's him. I wanted my relationship with my father to be stronger in life. And I didn't know how to move on after he died. It wasn't until six months later, he died in October. Six months later, I had a dream in January. And in that dream, I met my father, and he gave me a hug. And he said, I'm proud of you, son. You're going to make it, and you're going to be okay. That hug was so real to me, it became the one time I really felt accepted by my dad. Jesus said to Mary... Mary, she turned and said to him, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to my father, but I go to my brothers and go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary clings to Jesus because she doesn't want the belonging she feels to slip away. But Jesus tells her that because of his ascension to the Father, everyone belongs. Jesus' ascension is not about him leaving us, it's about him being fully present with all of us. His ascension establishes his lordship here and now, and it makes the fullness of his presence available to everyone. I'm thankful for that one dream. But the, but the reality is that I still had to live each and every day out without my father. And you know what? When you become a father yourself, you realize just how much you need your dad. I had a 
young family, I did not anticipate. I was a youth pastor. I wanted to do certain things. I wanted to look after my home. But there was no way I was going to be able to look, do the things that I wanted to do. And so there was, a, there was a void in me. I didn't realize it. And I, I worked with this, this gentleman who I mentioned to you before, Ken Bombay, and I literally, before I was even accepted as his staff member full-time, I asked him if he would adopt me as a son. He said, I'll think about it for a couple of weeks and pray about it. <laughs> Luckily, it, it was uh, probably a little less than that. He said he would, he would love to be that. And I, I found that it was, I needed someone that I could bounce things off of, that I could, I could internal, I could bring my thoughts without being judged, without, so that I could process and look after things and, and, to look at things in a different way than what I was experiencing too, because all I could see was what I could do with my own, with my own strength, with my own capacity. And having a, a, an adopted father gave me a greater capacity to do the things that I needed to do, who I felt I was. Now, um, has there been, you know... A, happily ever after life. <laughs> no, I, I still have to work out my, my sonship and to work out that relationship because it is one that in effort of relationships one to another, you still have to work those things out day by day by day by day. Why is this so important? Well, you see... By understanding that I belonged, I was able to trust. I began to be open. I, had, I didn't have to believe a certain way or behave differently, but he appreciated me anyway. He didn't do anything that warranted that praise, but he liked me. He enjoyed my company. And later on, I became his right-hand man for ministry. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Mary Magdalene is, in fact, the very first apostle in the Bible. Apostle is one who is sent to trans to transform with a message. The first apostle wasn't one of the twelve, it was Mary Magdalene. In order to be an apostolic church, we must be free from our orphan thinking. Orphan thinking keeps us in lack and in striving and keeps us trying to figure out who's in, who's out. Jesus does things differently. He ushers in a whole new creation of belonging, which leads us to right believing and then behaving. He does this because now, in the resurrection, everyone belongs. We need to remember, Mary found the power of the resurrection in the sound of him calling her name. 
You might not understand the full implications of what Jesus' raising from the dead is all about or what it means. But when he says your name and when he gives you a place, everything changes. Stop trying to fix your own beliefs. You don't know what they are until you've, you're faced with real life anyway. Stop trying to be accepted through your behaviors. What you gain can be lost that way. What I'm asking all of us is to stay at the empty tomb until we hear his name. He calls. And he says, Tracy, I'm alive. Hugo, I am alive. Martha, I am alive. I am alive. You see, so often in life, we are caught in this the spinning wheel like a little rodent does for fun. We get on this, the habit of the more, if we just get faster, we'll get a little further, but we still stay the same place of where we are. Because we're caught in this crap of thinking that I've got to believe something, I've got to, or I have this belief system and God's got to fit in this particular box. When the resurrection is saying something different, Jesus is saying, I died on a cross for you. I have forgiven you of your sins. I went to hell and took the keys. And then I rose again on the third day in power because I'm breaking the way religion works. That's why it's so important for us to encounter him. Because he literally is the very image of the Father. And the Father loves you. He didn't want you to be caught in the vicious circle of religion. He desires to relation, a relationship with you. And to give you that sense of belonging that says, you know what? You're part of the family. I've done all the work to include you into the family. Well, I guess what you're saying, Pastor, is that does that mean everyone is part? Well, he gives you a free will. He doesn't make you. He gives you, he gives all. He paves the whole way right up to the very door and you get to decide whether you want to be included or not. It's all about free will. The work was done all the way up to there. And all he wants is he's writing on your heart of flesh. He's saying, I want to be your God. 
I'm not making you my robot. I'm going to be your God if you want me. And yet, at times, we, we strive and we try to make it all about what we believe, what we, what we do, and we miss the fact that really he is a father with open arms waiting like the prodigal sons, like the, the story, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. Or he's still waiting if you're the older son, doing all the stuff, and yet there is no relationship. He is that father who's done everything possible to come into contact with you. The resurrection is all about him coming and saying, hi. Are we going to be the ones that say, well, where'd you put the body? Why didn't you come like this? Why didn't you do this? Why can't, why do, and we have all of our, our questions. And we use those questions and those unfulfillments to, to be the reason why we don't step through the door and say, yes, God, I want that family. I want you. I'm asking. I'm, in, I'm appealing to you. Appealing. Appeal. I'm making that appeal to you. It sounds like appealing, like peeling an orange. I want to make that appeal to all of us. God has called us to be burning ones. It's not in what you think. It's not in what you do. But it's in who you are. great part about the New Testament is it says that you are all sons and that creation is groaning with anticipation of the sons the daughters of God it's groaning for you 